Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the first Confucius Institute for Business London annual public lecture. Um, it's the start of the autumn term, the new academic year, and it's a great way to start because we've got Professor Danny Kwa, who I know most of you know, and if you don't know him now, you'll want to know more of him later, um, who's going to give the uh, first talk of the season, the lecture, an amazing title, 627 million Chinese brought out of poverty, where did it all go wrong? Um, the right mix of gravitas and levity already in the title. Um, I wanted to try and get the introduction to Danny Wright. I'm actually Nick Byrne. I'm the director of the Language Centre here at LSE and also the UK director of the Confucius Institute for Business London. We have in the audience as well the China director, Professor Huang from Tsinghua University. Um, there are two ways, by the way, of, of learning Chinese. If you're still thinking of signing up for courses, yes, there is going to be an advertorial before we start. Um, it's very much like one language, two systems. Get the picture, doing a little bit of analogy there. Um, you can either learn general Chinese from the LSE Language Center. Um, for the first time, by the way, we actually have Chinese delivered as a degree option. So uh, those people who've already chosen it, and they are full, um, are going to do 25% of any one year of their degree in Chinese. And the numbers are a sellout, and we will be increasing those numbers next year and the year after. Um, but we also do certificate courses in general Chinese. But if you want to learn business Chinese, very much from the business angle, we have the amazing Confucius Institute for Business London um, that offers business Chinese from beginners to advance. And also the great thing about having Confucius Institute for Business London here, that's a very big four words to say all the time, uh, Sybil as we like to call it. We actually have a Chinese cultural centre on site. So whether you do Chinese as part of your degree, whether you do Mandarin Chinese, certificate course, language centre, whether you do business Chinese at Sybil, you've actually got um, a physical and spiritual home to learn more about China. Um, we're very connected to China, and we actually are very grateful for Han Van, which is equivalent to the British Council, Goethe Institute, Institut Francais in China, for actually supporting us so much and really giving us, A, the power, funding to do events, and events that are serious in content, like this lecture, but also fun events as well, Chinese New Year coming up in February, we've had the Autumn Festival, things that really make you feel part of, of events, and also next year year, also the China Development Society, we work with them, so lots of things going on. Um, I'm a Germanist in background, and I'm a new convert to, to China. I've been doing the directorate for four years, learning a minimal of Chinese, and now I'm actually going to start seriously next, no, not next week, but in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> and um, perhaps I might have a blog, and you can watch my, um, my Chinese... Development grow. At the moment, uh, two words, no, three words. Wotong Yi, I agree. They are so important in Chinese, and I've been Wotong Yiing for the last of the four years about how important China and Chinese is. Anyway, enough of this. Now, I actually said to Danny, I normally just do, the great thing about being a chair for one of Danny's is that you actually don't really do anything. It is the Danny Kwa show. You just say a few words, introduction agree about how marvellous he is and you move to one side and that's it. But I thought I'm actually going to do a better job and I said look can you send me you know, a press release description of what you're doing up to date so I really get the facts. So he said fine. I said just something short, you know the basic things. So it came through, I didn't even look at it, opened it, put it on the printer. 
heard the printer carry on, one minute, two minutes, running out of paper. <laughs> he does so much. Um, I'm just going to give you a snapshot of what he does in case you didn't know what he does. Well, already he is a professor of economics at London School of Economics Political Science, senior fellow of LSE Ideas, chair of the LSE PKU Summer School Board, and also is on our academic advisory committee for the Confucius Business London. But interesting, highlighted in red, uh, also served on Malaysia's National Economic Advisory Council 2009-11. I'm talking names here of previous universities he's worked at or studied. I'm talking Princeton, I'm talking Harvard, I'm talking MIT, I'm talking Tsinghua University, Singapore's names, 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 they continue. Um, National University of Singapore lead universities and leading roles in those. Um, 2011, an amazing inaugural lecture um, on one of the LSE big questions, East Beats West. Um, he was also a panellist on sustaining Asia's competitiveness at the Achanjin 2010 World Economic Forum Summer Davos Annual Meeting of the New Champions. I'm old enough to remember a TV series called The Old Champions, and they were all super beings and superpowers. Very like Danny. Um, he also gave the eighth SER Distinguished Public Lecture on the Shifting Global Balance of Power in Singapore, uh, Ralph Miliband's series on the Restructuring of World Economy, and also the Gokeng Sui Lecture in Singapore on China's Economic Growth, and the World Economic Asia Lecture, Will Asia Save the World in Kuala Lumpur? We're talking a tremendous mind, a tremendous personality, and very generous of his own time to actually give all of us his opinion. And I think also it's worthwhile to note that some of his writings have been translated into 18 languages, but I think actually must be some sort of a record. Um, I could go on with BBC, foreign correspondent, embassy, um, but we really are getting into, uh, well, almost a hyperventilation. Um, but I think what we're looking at very much is someone who is really focusing his research on what matters now with China. He's investigating in particular the eastward drifts of global economic activity and the implications of such ongoing shift. And he's trying to make large things visible to the naked eye. Um, had to think about that one, but actually it is amazing what he's doing and really focusing on the power of China. Um, we're talking about, in his final lecture series, a global financial crisis for LSE 100 and the global economy for the LSE PKU summer school, and also a regular slot on some of the key master's programs at LSE. He's totally committed to spreading the word around the world and totally committed to making sure that you here at LSE hears him and hears what he has to say. And if you don't agree with what he has to say, can I just issue one word of warning? He holds a black belt in Taekwondo. <laughs> you don't mess with him. So I have no intention of messing with him, but to welcome him to the podium for his talk tonight. Thank you very much, Professor Dunningham. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, thank you, all audience, for being here. It's a great pleasure indeed to be here. Um, I also have to say that you know, Nick Byrne and his directorship of the Confucius Institute and various other things that he runs around the LSE has really made it a pleasure to work here at the LSE. His energy and, and enthusiasm, exuberance, just makes participating in these kinds of activities a lot of fun, 
and uh, very enriching. As Nick has suggested, I am actually in, in my daytime job, a professor of economics here at the London School of Economics. This talk is not going to be primarily about economics. I'm not going to be shy about talking about economic issues, economic problems, economic questions, providing economic arguments, or providing economic facts. But I think enough ink has been spilt on the issue of whether China will continue to grow, whether China is bound to come to a hard landing. And I think the evidence on both sides are at different times compelling. I will treat some of these questions about the possibility of continued Chinese economic growth, the ongoing role that China will play in the global economy. But my primary focus this evening actually concerns much more a different side to China's economic development. And this side is really much more an issue of, of public relations, of communications and media, of cultural understanding. In fact, the more I thought about this, these are exactly the things that Sybil, the Confucius Institute here at the LSE does. And what I want to try and drive together, drive out in this lecture, is an interface between what you might think of as the hard economic argument and the soft skills, but no less important, the soft skills that something like the Confucius Institute provides all of us. So in my talk this evening, I will indeed talk about economic statistics. I will tell you the good things about what I see happening in China's economic development. But I also want to talk about the bad press. And there is a huge amount of bad press on China. There's the fear that China, through its economic progress, is unbalancing and distorting the global economy. There's the view that it will upset the established international political order, that it is polluting the earth, it is destroying the earth's environment, that, in quotes, something must be done. Again, in quotes, the West must respond. And it is this latter question that I want to treat a little bit more in depth. Hence, the, part, the second part of my title, Where Did It All Go Wrong? I will not be shy about talking about all the good news, that 627 million Chinese have been lifted out of poverty, more than 100% that the entire world has been able to do. But I want to talk a lot also about how other parts of the global economy, other parts of the world, do not seem to give China, or actually Asia more generally, the unalloyed credit that China and Asia should get from this. Instead, what the rest of the world asks is, given China's steps in economic progress, given China's increase, ever-increasing large economic footprint, what must the West do to respond? I will obviously argue that this is the wrong question as China's economic progress continues. And I will try and formulate the right question. And the right question must be one that acknowledges that the world's priorities have shifted that the global economy has shifted is not just a fact about dollars and cents, pounds and pennies, about renminbi shifting, but it is about how the world's priorities must also adjust. Okay. That is what most of the talk will be about, but to satisfy and, and actually to be fair, because I'm not allowed to practice really in public without talking about economic things, 
I will talk about some of the economic reasons why people think China cannot continue its growth path, as well as some of why I disagree with that. And at the end of this, I want to therefore have ended, gotten to a, to a point where, after beginning with the good news, I want to get us to where passing through the bad press, passing through the public relations, disasters, I want to get to a point where we can discuss why China's growth might slow, and then at the end of that, we will have a better picture of where it all went wrong. Okay, so first, let's get out of the way the good news, the first part of the title. This are facts that if those of you who've come to some other lectures I've given will already be familiar with, but not everyone will be, and nonetheless, these are good facts to remember. This is the fact that I want to begin with in today, tonight's lecture. This is the state of the world in 1981. It is a state of the world that is described by different regions in the world. The different balloons or spheres that appear in this picture represent either countries or continental groupings. The vertical axis in this picture, how high up you go in this picture, describes how many millions of people you have in a country living in extreme poverty, living on less than a dollar a day. The horizontal axis in this picture, how far right you go in this picture, describes how well off your country or your continental grouping is, what is happening to average income in your country. Your eye should immediately be drawn to the bright blue bubble that sits on top of everything else in this picture. And remember what it indicates, it indicates a situation where there's a lot of people living in poverty. Here, 835 million people living in poverty, high up on the vertical axis. And then towards the left in this picture, showing that that country or that continental grouping has very low average income. The situation in 1981, as the date here indicates, describes a landscape, a landscape of poverty around the world. We see that right on top of this picture is China. China in 1981 had 835 million people living on less than a dollar a day, living in extreme poverty. Since the population of China at this time was between 900 million and a billion, over 85%, between 85 and 90% of China's population lived in extreme poverty. And then the rest of the world sort of lines up after it. There is India, which is the second highest balloon. And then quite a bit further down is Sub-Saharan Africa. So simply as a reality check, we notice that if in 1981, the world community had been really concerned about global poverty, about the state of humanity, about people living on less than a dollar a day, it is China that they should have been paying attention to. It is China that they should have focused their efforts on, not the rest of the world. How did the world unfold after that? Well, the story is not an unfamiliar one, but it's useful to just look at a picture and remind ourselves of the magnitude of the change. This is the state of the world, the landscape of poverty in 1981. This is the state of the world by 2005. The bright blue bubble remains China, and you'll notice that it has now moved from way up high, way up high, well, the battery doesn't quite reach there, but way up high, uh, where poverty was extremely high, to, well, the middle of the pack. It had moved to where it's the number of people living in extreme poverty in China, even with the expanded 1.2 billion people, is now a little over 120 million. Hence, 627 million people have been lifted out of poverty. We see that in doing this, China had overtaken India, it had overtaken Sub-Saharan Africa. India remains the bright green bubble. Its rightwards movement, its income growth has barely shown, has barely registered on the scale that we're looking at. 
It has about the same number of people living in extreme poverty in 2005 as it had in, in 1981. Sub-Saharan Africa shows up even more prominently. It is the other bright green bubble that you see situated next to India's. It has more poor people now. Its level of income has remained roughly the same, and its population has increased. Sub-Saharan Africa has, over the last 30 years, simply increased poverty with absolutely zero economic growth. How did the world go from this situation, 1981, to 2005? Well, the way it did this is as follows. Keep your eye on the bright blue bubble. That is China. China's progress downwards in this picture, poverty reduction, was not uniform. There were periods when poverty actually increased. But as economic growth took hold, as the bright blue bubble shifted rightwards in this picture, poverty reduction occurred and occurred dramatically. And we notice that just for the record here, China did this with the rest of the world barely paying attention. The world was not swarming around Chinese villages, providing it textbooks and randomized experiments. The world was not providing aid through mosquito nets. It was not coming in and rewriting China's legal code. China did this in a way that was quite unnoticed by the rest of the world. Sub-Saharan Africa, the bright green bubble that you see percolating upwards, seeing increasing poverty throughout of this period. Well, remember, that's where Angelina Jolie and Madonna go to adopt children. That's where Bono talks about global poverty. Well, yes, it is a dire situation in Sub-Saharan Africa. But for all the attention that the global community has paid to Sub-Saharan Africa, very little has paid off. And all, more than 100% of the reduction in world poverty has occurred in a way that was actually practically unnoticed by the rest of the global economy until the rest of the global economy thought that this was going to be a problem. How exactly was this going to be a problem? Let's remind ourselves what China, Chinese poverty is like. When you're talking about 835 million people living on less than a dollar a day poverty in China, 85% of it in 1981, we're talking about young children sweeping up the streets, sweeping up, sweeping up uh, rough streets with their hands. We're talking about children going to school in shoes that barely clad their feet and they have to walk between school and home because they cannot afford to pay for a school lunch. We're talking about people living in dire circumstances where the kitchen is barely a hole in the wall and where lunch is a bowl of noodles with very, very little else in it. We're talking about an ecosystem where there are two toilets outdoors separated by a wall, one marked women, one marked men, and that is right next to the animal. Right, that's right next to where the animals are, forming a neat little ecosystem that recycles. We're talking about classrooms that have broken floors and have rocks that keep the wind out. And we're talking about class desks whose tops are rough wood. Okay. And what China has achieved in this time, well, that's, that's the good news. That's the first part of the title. And it has achieved this in a way that has overtaken every other part of the world. While the rest of the world paid attention to what was happening in Africa, while the international scholar community of development scholars descended on Indian villages to try and repair the poverty and the disease, all of which is well-deserved, it was actually China, with very little of this attention, that took the lead. And in this picture, we see that what's happened with India in the red line over the course of the last 30 years 
has been actually an increase in the number of people living in extreme poverty, while its improvement in growth moving rightwards in this picture has been a fraction of what's happened in China. China, as shown in the blue line here, has not had uniform, unambiguous, clear road ahead progress. Far from it. There were times when poverty increased and increased for a long time over what people had experienced. But its trend is clear. So that is the state of the world. That's the first part of the title. And you know, it's not just in poverty reduction that we, we can document these statistics. This was a chart that appeared in the Economist newspaper just last week. It did a comparison between India and China. And it showed how India, for all the great growth that we're seeing now, is still miles behind what's, happened, what's already happened with China. If you look at, for instance, child mortality, this this is probably too small for, for everyone in the audience to see. But if the second row down, India last year achieved a child mortality rate of 66 per 1,000 children. China's current infant mortality rate is 19. China achieved an infant mortality rate of 66, what India achieved last year, 33 years ago. And as you go down this picture, by every single measure, China has done amazing things for improving the lot of human welfare, for improving the welfare of humanity. Okay. But of course, that takes us to the second part of the talk, <laughs> which is where our public relations issue comes in. Now, these are phrasings that I think typically do not get an airing in an academic environment, do not get an academic setting. Let's see what it says. It says that, well, I hear people tell me this. You know, you can go around talking about how the good things that China has done, but as China gets richer, what's it going to do? It's going to muscle its way around the geopolitics of the world. It's going to take back Taiwan. Depending on how fervent these people feel about this, they'll talk about China taking back the Spratly Islands, you know, a huge archipelago that's claimed by 18 different sovereign nations in Asia and Southeast Asia. Or it'll go over to Japan, knock it on its head, and take back the Senkaku Islands. It'll extend its control over the East China Sea, the South China Sea. It will stop Vietnam from exploring the continental shelf off of the coast of Vietnam. At one point, China is going to own Africa. And then, once it gets rich enough, it's going to teach the United States a lesson. You see, this is the bad press. For all the amazing things that I've just described to you about what China has done for improving the welfare of humanity, what it comes rubbing up against are sentiments like this. Now, I've exaggerated this, obviously. No scholar writes these things down or even contemplates that. Although I have to confess, I have been in discussions, well, gosh, right here at the LSE, where people have said things very close to this. Now why? Why has China communicated so badly? Why is it that the country that has accounted for more than 100% of poverty reduction in the world, done more than, no offense to any of a religious persuasion, done more than the Pope, Bono, Angelina Jolie, Madonna, U2, for alleviating world poverty? Why has it communicated its intentions and its achievements so badly? Why? Well, I'm going to start out the mood has gotten a little bit too serious. People are thinking about going to war at this point. So let me poke fun mostly at myself. Why is it that China has communicated so badly? Well, okay. David Henry Huang 
is an American playwright, hugely successful. He's had six successful Broadway openings. Just yesterday, the Wall Street Journal reported, and I had known about this ahead of time, Wall Street Journal reported that Huang is opening his seventh Broadway show in just a few weeks this month in New York City. And this is a play about Chinglish. That's the title of the play. It's the conglomerate, it's the slamming together of Chinese English. It is in an exaggerated form why it is that English is spoken peculiarly in Asia. Now, Chinglish is not a Chinese unique point. In Malaysia, where I come from, people talk about Manglish. <laughs> in Singapore, where I spend a lot of time, people talk about Singlish. People talk about inability of these Asian nations to communicate their intent. So David, Hen David Henry Wong, in describing the motivation for, some, for his play, talks about how he went to an amazing museum art center in Shanghai. Everything was done perfectly. The floors were polished. Everything was first world. The toilets were top class. Everything was clean. The decor was amazing. And then he saw that when he went, when he had to go to the facilities, he saw this sign. <laughs> A Chinglish translation of a very fine intent to provide disabled facilities. Okay. Now, those of you who have reflected on this, you will know that actually there are entire websites devoted to incidents like this. What is remarkable about this is that this was an attempt by China, by Chinese authorities, by the government, by the arts community, to put on its very best face. It wasn't a cobbled together sign in a food stall that you might encounter in uh, Hutong walking around Beijing. This was a distinguished top uh, building, top class building, that was supposed to show off the cultural achievements of this growing nation, this great growing nation that's done all these amazing things. Okay. Enjoy your meal in the next two hours. Get out of here quickly. Okay. Don't know if you can see that. That doesn't come out so well, so never mind. Uh, you know, be careful. You know, Xiaoxin, take great care. Be careful. Don't fall. It's translated as slip and fall carefully. <laughs> now, okay, these are, these are not serious. I'm trying to lighten our discussion after that hor horrible slide that talked about how as China gets richer, it's going to go teach America a lesson. Okay. But there is a problem in communication. There's a problem in conveying its intent. And, and I say this not to poke fun at anyone. This is what people say about me. Okay. This, for those who can, you can read this, let me try. As for learning Chinese, he's not particularly gifted. That's what people say about me. Okay. I am not poking fun at anybody's language skills. I am trying to make a point about communications generally. 
And I'm, you know, I want to be clear, it might be pot calling the kettle black, but I have huge issues in trying to communicate. Okay. Now, arrayed on the one side with the kinds of things that we've just seen, on the other side are elements that are articulate, expert, knowledgeable, describing what the West, the challenge that China now poses to the West. And Kisho Mabubani, who is the dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, he is actually someone who talks constantly the way that, you know, he and I are sympathetic in this, in that we think that the rise of Asia, the economic power of Asia has not gone hand in hand with the soft power, the understanding of political manipulation, the understanding of how international relations work. And Kishore talks constantly about how Asians themselves don't have the self-confidence to believe that Asia has actually risen. But when he gives an interview to Farid Zakaria at CNN, this is how it comes out. Wake up, America, you're falling behind. My friend, Neil Ferguson, a professor of history at Harvard University who co-taught Global Financial Crisis Module with me last year in uh, LSE 100. Now, he has a book, he's got a video game, he's got a TV show, all talking about civilization. It's the West history. The implicit theme being, there is the rise of the East, there's the rise of China, the United States and the West have lost their six killer applications, the six killer apps. The West must respond. What must the West do to respond? And we see this over and over again. So let me give you, I've, I've tried to be a little bit lighthearted, I've told you about some funny things, I've tried to be very clear, none of this is personal, I bear you know, as much responsibility for not understanding languages as well as I should. Let's now, now, I'm now gonna turn to looking at statistics and data a little bit more that confirm or bring out different aspects of what I've just said, okay. So I'm standing up here having told you about all these amazing things that happened with Chinese poverty reduction, the improvement in human welfare that's due to the rise, not just of China, but a lot of what's happening in East Asia. And sure enough, the young in the United States are forward-looking and they realize that this is going on. See, in contrast to what happens in Europe. Now, this is a chart that comes out of a survey that the German Marshall Foundation published um, just a few weeks ago, a survey done over the last summer. And it asked of Europeans and of Americans separately, who do you think will be the nation or the region that's most important for your national interest? And what this chart does is it, it, it tabulates the results of this across age groups. The light bar shows Europeans, people in the European Union, 12, and the dark bar shows Americans, people in the United States. So as we cast our eye across the horizontal part of this picture, we see that the grayish bar, the light bar, hardly changes. What does that say? That says that across all age groups, people in Europe think that Asia, important to our national interest, eh, 29% of Europeans age 65 plus think that Asia is the most important region. 41% in age group 18 to 24. But as you cast your eye along this horizontal axis in the grayish bar, there's hardly a change in contrast to what happens in the dynamic forward-looking United States. Because you know, people in America who are as old as me 
will be clustered on this side of the picture, and 33%, 36% of us think that Asia is the most important region for our national interest, for Americans. But when it comes to, well, it comes to you, it comes to university students, 18 to 24 age group, 76%, three quarters of you, are looking east. You are not you know, looking at what's happening in London, Berlin, Moscow, you're looking all the way east at this point. Henry Kissinger used to talk about how the arrow of history pointed from Washington DC to London to Berlin to Moscow and then east to Beijing and Shanghai. Well, according to this picture, he can cut short that story at this point because the arrow of history goes from Washington DC, takes a huge leap way out to Asia, right ends right in Beijing and skips over all of us here in London or the rest of Europe. In contrast to the Europeans who are still concerned either with our special relationship with the United States or a special relationship with each other here in the European Union, not what's going on in the outside world. So all of this seems to be good news. Americans will understand what's going on in China, but then you take a look at the next chart that Transatlantic Trends puts out. And this is a chart that shows that divides the audience, that divides the survey between those who think China or the rise of China is an economic opportunity or an economic threat. Now the, the, the words here are probably too small for everyone to see, so let me read out some of what's interesting here. The countries are ranked left-right according to first the, the to the extreme left if they think China is more of a threat. And right at number one is the United States. This economy, which has had its young people looking east, for that's where your national interest is going to be most important, sees 63% of those surveyed considering China to be an economic threat versus half of that, 31%, thinking that China is an economic opportunity. Two Americans for everyone think that China basically evade all the good things that China has done in terms of elevating a lot of humanity, but consider China an economic threat. They're taking our jobs, they're underpricing their currency, they're buying up our treasury bonds, they hold two, two almost three trillion dollars of our debt at this point, and they are an economic threat. Who are the countries that are over here? Well, right here is the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has 58% good on you. 58% thinking China is an economic opportunity versus only 34% who think of it as a threat. Now Dean Etchison, years, decades ago, talked about how when the, when the United Kingdom lost the Suez Canal, it had lost its role in the world, it has lost its position in the world, but it had not yet found a role. Subsequently, observers have noticed that after losing the empire, Britain actually became a much better citizen in the world and it's much more open to developments elsewhere, much more open, it's open as a trading nation, and it is, it is a friend to the rest of the world, as are, in this instance, the Netherlands, Romania, Sweden, and Bulgaria. Okay. But, and the EU sits roughly about where the, U, where the UK is. Now, okay, so this, these are people who think, the United, uh, who think that China is potentially an opportunity rather than a threat. But given the scale that we've just seen, the world's strongest economies, the world's lead economy, that economy where, most, where now more and more people in overwhelming numbers are interested in what's happening in the world, well, they consider China a threat. 
Okay. And they would look at what the kind of writings and the ideas uh, you know, by, by many colleagues of mine, you know, and they will say, what's happening here is rise of the rest on a staggering scale, simply staggering what we see going on here. What should the West do to respond? And as I've suggested, I'm saying that this is the wrong question. When we began, we talked about all the good things that the rise of the East, the rise of China, has done for improving a lot of humanity. It's very difficult to argue against those numbers, but that is not the perception. So I think the right question is this. How should the world reorient its priorities? What is appropriate global policy, economic policy, diplomatic policy, appropriate policy, recognizing that it is no, should no longer be a case of the West or the previous global hegemon, whoever that might be, being the one that maintains order in the world, but instead more and more people, rightly, ought to have a say in what is good for the world as a whole. Okay. Now, one of the reasons I think that, one of the reasons I think that this matters is this little animation. This is an animation that shows what's happened to the world's economic center of gravity in the last 30 years and then projecting it forwards to the next 50. The world's center of gravity 30 years ago rightly began at that point in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the transatlantic axis, halfway between the United States and Western Europe. In the last 30 years, this center of gravity has, in the sequence of black dots, moved 5,000 kilometers, three quarters of the Earth's radius eastwards, so that it has moved from west of London to east of London. It is now east of Helsinki and Bucharest, east of Izmir, Turkey. And if you project what's happening around 700 locations on Earth, the 700 locations on Earth that were used to calculate the center of gravity, you see that the center of gravity is driving not off of the Asian continent, but it is clustering at a point on the boundary between India and China. What some people might like to say is returning to where the world center of gravity was for most of the last 2,000 years. When the world center of gravity is located 10 time zones away from Washington, D.C., I suggest that it is very difficult for us to continue thinking about global policy as being Washington-centric and that what we need to do is to rethink policy so that it properly reflects what's changed in the world. Okay, and what's changed in the world is that the United States, among other things, is no longer viewed as the savior of the global economy. One of a number of examples that you can pick out, quantitative easing monetary policy that attempts to rescue the US economy is, not, is no longer uniformly viewed positively by the rest of the world, but is viewed with actually some, uh, is, 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 is viewed with some, some risk, viewed with some, viewed askance by the rest of the world. Okay. So for the next five, ten minutes, before I conclude, I would like to give you five reasons, additional to what I've just said, about why we need to reorient global policy. If at the end of ten minutes I don't have all five reasons done, I'm going to skip to the conclusion anyway, because these things, the next five reasons, simply buttress or, or you know, support the position that I've laid out for you already. So the five reasons have to do with the performance of East Asia in stabilizing global downturns. We already have heard about poverty reduction in strengthening the world's export markets, in not actually increasing military aggression, in not 
dirtying the planet in a way that's inappropriate. I will take us through this. So first, stabilizing global downturns. Okay, when we went into the global financial crisis, there was the view that when the United States and Western Europe suffer, you know, had, the, had declines in their, their income, declines in their consumption, the entire world would suffer because the East was driven, you know, enjoyed only export-driven growth, export-driven growth from consumers in the United States and Western Europe. So it is a question, did the East actually slow down when the United States and Western Europe did? Now, there, this table contains a lot of numbers. I'm not going to take us through all of this. There are just a number of points I want to make. I'm interested in the final column here, which shows us the evolution of the global economy in the 2008 global financial crisis. And what it shows is the performance, economic performance in different parts of the world relative to the United States. Did incomes everywhere decline as happened in the United States? Did the United States drag everybody down? Or did the rest of the world provide a stabilizing influence? Incomes in the United States actually fell. So these numbers are a ratio of what happened to incomes in different parts of the world as a fraction of what happened in the United States. A negative number in this column is good news because it means that as the United States declined, this part of the world continued to grow. And what we see is that for China, China grew at, China contributed to the global economy 87% of an increase in income what the United States would have just taken away. Because the United States economy declined, it would have taken away dollar for dollar what was happening to growth in the global economy. China put 87 cents back for every dollar that the US economy declined. This doesn't say that China completely stabilized the global economy, but this said that China went a long way towards counteracting the decline that would have occurred in the global economy had it simply been the United States driving the world. And we see that China and India together contributed more than one United States decline to the global economy. Put another way, that the global economy did not decline as sharply as the US did, is due basically to China and India and to the rest of emerging East Asia Pacific region. And what, this, what the rest of this table shows is that we should not have been surprised by this because China and India did this again the last two times there was a global economic downturn where the US led the world into, into decline. Okay, I won't go over this charts. Still though, doesn't the whole world just export one way? Isn't it the case that from everything that we've been told, the global economy is one where the East manufactures and sends goods and services to the West, sends goods and services to the United States. Whatever happened there, maybe it was just Chinese fiscal policy. They went out and built bridges and they built infrastructure in a way that the US economy was unable to, and that's how they kept the economy growing. Isn't it the case still that really what keeps the global economy going is the East exporting to the West? Well, actually, that turns out not to be true either. Because if you look at, let's begin by looking at just one country, Singapore. This is a chart of where Singapore's export markets are. The United States and the European Union show up here in the blue and red. And in the early 1980s and the 1990s, yes, 
the United States and the European Union were major export markets for a country like Singapore. But then notice that long before the 2008 global financial crisis, by mid-1995 onwards, and then accelerating dramatically as the United States and Western Europe continued to slow down, developing Asia provided by far the largest of Singapore's export markets. So that by 2008, 2009, Singapore was exporting to developing Asia five times what it was doing to either the US or the EU. Now, someone might re legitimately say, you were talking about the global economy, you've shown us a chart about Singapore. Singapore, fine first world country that it is, you know, per capita income right up there with everybody else, but it's a country of four million people. It is basically one London underground every day. That's how large an economy you're talking about here. Why are we even looking at Singapore? Well, look at Malaysia. Same story. Malaysia's export markets have certainly become just developing Asia. And then look around the world. Whoops. Look at the United Arab Emirates. The Gulf countries now export six times to the rest of developing Asia, notably China, what they do to either the United States or the European Union. Same thing with Kuwait. And then perhaps something a little bit more interesting, the European Union. So here's the European Union. Its major export market remains the United States in blue. The line in green is developing Asia. China drives a lot of what's happening to developing Asia. And you'll notice that the way these lines are going, not least because of what's happened to the collapse of the US economy following the 2008 global financial crisis. In a year or two, perhaps already it's happened, Europe, Europe will find that developing Asia and China are by far its export markets more important than the United States. And then finally, let me just pick up on one country in the European Union, Germany. Now, most of Germany's export trading partners are the European Union countries, no question about that. But let's look at what happens outside of Europe. For almost all of the recorded history that we see here, the United States in blue was Germany's largest export market. But then notice what happened. Developing Asia suddenly took off in from the early 2000s on, and then by the middle of the global financial crisis had overtaken as an export market for Germany, the United States. Now, some people are puzzled why Germany has had such a strong economic performance in light of the malaise that continues to plague the US economy. Well, actually, look where Germany is exporting to. Germany exports mostly to developing Asia now, and that buoyancy has helped it continue to go through. Now, there were three non-issues I wanted to talk about before I get to the conclusions. Remember, I had said that I told you about the good news on China and actually on all of East Asia. I told you why the bad press does not seem to disseminate that. We do not all seem to understand the good things that are happening there. No matter how many times we look at these numbers, no matter how many times somebody tells us about these numbers, that story just doesn't come through. At the same time, we're worrying about China teaching the United States a lesson. Well, what's happening with military power in China? Okay, yes, China has a standing army that's in excess of two and a quarter million people. That's actually not, that's a bit larger than the United States, but China has four times the population of the United States, and its army is a quarter larger. China's spending on military, on military, on the military is less than one-tenth that of the United States. In um, when, when military theorists, when military scientists, if that's not a contradiction in terms, when military theorists talk about 
war and projecting power, they describe things about how countries need aircraft carriers because that's how you project your military power. That's how you get your troops and your equipment from one part of the world to the other. Uh, as of a few years ago, um, the entire world's Navy displacement was about a little over 3 million tons. The United States displaced 2.7 million tons of seawater. The world, entire world displaced 3 million. The, and until last year, the entire world had 36 aircraft carriers. The United States operated 24 of them. China operated exactly zero. China now has one aircraft carrier that's decades old in technology. As far as military power is concerned, it is a dream that when China gets richer, it could even begin to talk about teaching the United States a lesson. Okay, is China changing the global climate? Good gosh, here's what's happening to China's energy usage per capita. From 1975 on until 2008, China's energy usage has tripled. Isn't China dirtying the planet? Well, let's put this in perspective. The United States is the red line, <laughs> and its per capita usage completely dwarfs what's happening in China. India and China's policymakers will not be shy about telling you, look, every country needs carbon to grow. We are basically using zero carbon at this point. We cannot grow without increasing our carbon footprint. That's just got to happen. And the world has simply got to get its act together, get Google engineers to figure out how we go forwards on using clean energy. And if you care about inequality, you'll realize that although China has done these amazing things for reducing poverty and reducing, uh, reducing poverty worldwide, it is still a very poor country. China at this point is poorer than Belarus, El Salvador, and Japan. The typical person, the average person in China has an income that's lower than the average citizen of Belarus, El Salvador, or Jamaica. You know, China at this point in average income is poorer than nine countries in Africa. If China were differently shaped and located in the African continent, it would have already been a target for foreign aid. Okay. And India and the rest of Asia is even further behind. Now, where do I go from here? Okay, where do we go from here? I've told you the good news, I've told you the bad news, and I've told you why we need to be more optimistic about the position, more optimistic when we're realistic about the, the statistics and data on, on China. I am not going to stand up here, and I, I'm not, I want to be careful, I'm not standing up here and saying, look, don't worry, be happy, China's economic growth is assured for the next 25 years, it will continue its dramatic poverty reduction. There are lots of reasons uh, in that have been discussed why China could potentially slow down. There is the notion that it's already reaching a middle income level. And empirical studies, both from a while back and more recently, have shown that when countries reach a middle income level, about 16,500 US dollars per capita, that is a danger point because many, many countries that have reached that then either stagnate or fall backwards. There's only a handful of countries that have successfully made the transition from low incomes past that middle income uh, level into the rich group of countries. Notably, all of those countries are actually East Asian. South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, all countries in, in Asia that have the same kind of, well gosh, Confucius Institute based type uh, philosophies have successfully made the transition so China could potentially get there. Is China close to that now? China's average income at PPP is between six and seven thousand US dollars a year at purchasing power parity correction. At a growth rate of 10% a year, it will reach 16,500 in three and a half years. 
So in three and a half years, it could potentially be at that dangerous middle income trap. As, as China, yeah. then other observations, China has overinvested. Part of China's massive drive for growth, economic growth, has been huge overinvestment in its excess capacity. And at some point, that bubble is going to burst. That bubble is going to burst. The rest of the world is going to stop importing from, from China. It does not yet have a sufficient middle class to build domestic demand. Within China, there's huge inequalities. There's pressure for political reform. Uh, China's currency is not internationalized. Its financial markets need to be made more robust and richer to allow it to fully engage with the rest of the world. And then finally, of course, that China has an aging population. Some clever person out there came up with the, the phrasing, China could potentially get old before it becomes rich. Now, I think there's good evidence on all of these different, that support all of these different things. I do want to point out that Having reached the age that I have, I object to point six. Point six suggests that an aging population is not productive. I like to think that I just get better as I get older. But <laughs> this is what people think that you know, when people in China has a huge set of pensioners and the working age population is less, it will be unable. To, the dependency ratio will be unfavorable, and China will longer be able to continue its its massive growth path. I think there are lots of interesting things to say for and against this. If we had time, if this were the kind of seminar, kind of speech, we could go into detail on this. But in tonight's lecture, what I've been most concerned about is item seven. That even if China evades all of the six possible obstacles, will it simply through inept public relations be forced to stop its current growth path by the rest of the world? Will China's currency policies be strong down into something else? Will China's policies on gradually diversifying investment from the East Coast to the West, at the same time solving an inequality problem, increasing the productivity of capital, increasing prospects for investment through building infrastructure in the West, will there be so much pessimism by the rest of the world on all these, in my view, very positive moves by China, that China will be forced to stop by the rest of the world. And if it does, of course, in my accounting, it will be a tragedy for the world. That China is not, in this point, going to be rich enough to threaten the rest of the world. But if it does, poverty reduction in the world will stop. All the amazing things we've seen happen with infant mortality, reducing infant mortality, improving health care, you know, improving along healthcare of the very poor, not to say there are not remain huge problems, but an overall massive reduction, China has been a huge success. So uh, let me not take up any more time. I've actually prepared some slides to say why actually many of the fears that people have about China are not well justified. If in question and answer time people want to come back to those six points, I'm happy to speak on this. Let me get to why, to the second part of the title after this. Where did it all go wrong? I would like to suggest to you that the balance on the evidence is that it has not gone wrong, but that there has been a massive public relations failure. And I think that all the observers among us who are looking on and saying, what advice can we give to China? Yes, let's be mindful of all of the wonderful things that are happening there. Let's, let's be helpful about designing pension schemes and possibly redesigning the hukou system, possibly thinking about equalizing the, this huge social divide in China. But let's also not forget the kinds of soft skills 
that we in the West, those of us who are students and those of us who are teachers, either in Chinese language or the Confucius Institute, can helpfully convey in this process of economic development. We need to, we need to stop these kinds of things happening. We need to, we need to appreciate that when you know, companies in China spend thousands of dollars putting together fancy company brochures, colorful descriptions of how successful the company is, pay the extra $200 or so to get a decent English translation made. Don't be another candidate for English.com. Okay. Let's just be mindful of the chain of command from when Hu Jintao is meeting Robert Gates, the Defense Secretary of the United States, talking about peaceful, talking about China's peaceful development, and then all of a sudden, China's G20 interceptor flight, its challenger for US supremacy in the air, takes its maiden voyage, right when Robert Gates is having that meeting, through nothing but miscommunication. Let's not have another fiasco, in, like in the 2000 Olympics, where the authorities had decided they would open up the Great Firewall to foreign journalists who were in the midst of Beijing, so that foreign journalists would discover that actually, you know, China is actually quite open in how it's able to access the internet. But then the local police decided that it was not to their advantage to provide a different kind of firewall scheme for just foreign journalists. So all the Great Firewall went up, and all foreign journalists complained about how China was everything that they had feared it would be. It was impossible to to do keyword searches on Tibet from inside your five-star hotel in China. Okay, so this is the balance that I think we have gotten to. Thank you very much. Right, I'm going to let Danny have a couple of seconds, minutes, just to um, calm down and relax and have a glass of water as well. Um, again, an amazing talk, an amazing lecture. Um, a couple of things I'd like to say as well. Um, you mentioned early on the importance of soft power, how sometimes China gets it wrong, and, and actually how sometimes it can get it right. And I think one of the interesting things of how it got right was the actually setting up of the Confucius Institutes. Um, I actually find it quite interesting that we're, we're talking about business models, and education is a huge business model. Um, universities, um, Confucius Institutes. It's the Institut Francais, the British Council, the Goethe Institute had thought in the same way. I mean, they must be kicking themselves. What normally happens you actually buy an expensive piece of real estate in the capital city, buy some more expensive buildings, you might rent them, you can't actually reach into the community, you only have one thing, and then they get too expensive to rent, so you close them off, the Goethe Institute had to. How China did it was a really interesting way, was actually going to the universities, choosing ones they wanted to work with, finding them a partner in China, saying, we'll give you a little bit of money to start up, match funding, give us some um, space. It's an amazing, actually, demonstration of very canny, very successful soft power diplomacy that works. And the one thing is, actually, that I've been dealing with Hanban for about five years is a genuine belief in actually wanting to make contact, wanting to get the right area over across. 
but occasionally falling into bad translation as well, um, which, which is funny. A couple of the points I wanted to say, I think what came over so well, I mean, the graphs and certain things I, I, I didn't realise about the actual um, uh, defence spending. But one of the things I don't know before you take questions from the floor, obviously in a world of the West where we're so cynical about PR, public relations, it has a bad thing, you actually see in China there is actually a role for it in the, in the most honest sense of public relations, getting that right. And I'm just wondering if you, you would actually have ideas and examples of, of how it's getting um, different. And the other thing that interests me, because I've got a, a curious background, one of my masters is in design studies, which is in the history of design from Central St. Martins. And we're hoping to um, next year, next calendar year, having a joint um, talk about the nature of creativity and creative idea, uh, ID identity um, with Central St. Martin's um, LSE and Tsinghua University and also with an amazing um, design company called Shajang, which um, is actually owned by Hermes in France and it's the idea of setting up a new company in a luxury market but with the whole idea of Chinese identity but the idea of what is the identity of China in loads of areas, particularly design? Where do you go? What are your reference points? After being out of the loop for so long, where do you place yourself near art design? Do you look after, do you look to Japan, Yojemamoto, Isimiyaki, those classics? Do you go to American streetwear? Do you go to European tailoring, mixing it with your own tailoring and things? And you actually look away from the world of design, you do actually look at a country looking for a, a new identity. And so are we actually talking about a country that seems incredibly strong, but in fact is actually still looking for a new identity? So the two things I'd like to throw out before we actually get questions on the floor. And I think questions in pairs or sure, threes, yeah. and then we'll do that. So. Yeah. Okay. Should I take your questions? Yes, you do. Okay. <laughs> take my questions. <laughs> okay, Nick, thanks. Um, so... Part of the part of the set of issue, interesting issues you raise um, <clears throat> touches on a side to this discussion that I was not able to get to, which is I've talked about the mistakes that China has made in its public relations communications. What are the things that it gets right? Well, I think there are a few things. First is um, how the government actually is able to show how quickly it learns from mistakes that it makes. So an example that I think is very helpful is, um, well, there were a number of very large events in China in 2008. Right at the beginning of that, there were the winter storms that paralyzed huge chunks of the country, where the political leadership seemed surprised by what was going on, out of control, befuddled. They look almost like the US Congress on a good day. Um, but they recovered from that time. They recovered from this mishap. And a few months later, when the Sichuan terrible Sichuan earthquakes happened, Wen Jiabao was on a plane to the region right that very afternoon. There was, immediately con there was immediate affirmation that the political leadership had taken charge and they would fix things. And I think, so part of what they get right is this amazing ability to be willing to learn and to be willing to learn in the right way. Obviously, the United States and other countries are quite happy to lecture China on its economic policy, on its currency policy. And to, in the eyes of some, China might be simply refusing to learn these very good lessons. But I think that it's China, the Chinese leadership has its own reasons for not 
meekly following what the United States and other economies are suggesting. The other thing I should point out is that within China, the, you know, the, the acclaim, I mean, yes, in, any, in a country of, gosh, in a country of 60 million people, far less 1.3 billion people, there will be elements of society that are dissatisfied. This country of only 60 million people uh, does not, in the eyes of the world, necessarily have huge social disparity problems. Nonetheless, our summer here in London was filled with riots organized by Blackberry. China will have its social problems, but when the Pew Annual Surveys carried out a global survey on satisfaction of citizens around the world with their own countries, right at the top of the approvals rating for countries was China. China's own citizenry showed 86% of them said that they were very satisfied with what the Chinese political leadership was doing with the direction of the Chinese economy and Chinese society. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that this is then, you know, this then says everything's right once again. I'm not saying that there are not reasons to be dissatisfied with the state of the Chinese economy or the state of Chinese society. But in terms of an undocted, unambiguous, you know, worldwide uh, unbiased pop approval rating, China comes way up. And for that, it's got to be doing a lot of things right. Thank you very much. Right, um, I'm going to go vroom, from left to right. Um, in many ways, first of all, um, the lady in the orange sounds very news night, or no, what's it called, the talking shop, whatever. Um, first one there, and we'll take questions in pairs. If you keep your questions short as well and really clear, it'd be great. Good evening, my name is Tanya Dimitrova, I'm a student in Queen Mary University. And I want to draw your attention to yet another miscommunication, forgive me, but it takes me to an important question. In 2001, um, the, journal, the scientific journal Nature published a study that pointed out that China has been over-reporting its um, fisheries um, yields for many years, which had um, distorted the global statistics kept by the UN Food and Agricultural Organization. Um, it, as a result of that, um, scientists and politicians were fooled to believe that the, as, as long as the catches are growing, then fisheries are managed correctly. Now, whereas actually um, fishery ca fisheries catches have been decreasing since the late 80s. In view of that, can we trust any of the other statistics coming out of China? Okay, Thank you. it's a question of trust and statistics. Question from the middle bit here. Okay, gentleman down here in the blue sweater. So the second of the... Okay. Um, you said how China and Chinese government is really willing to learn of everything they do and lessons of communication, but I'm specifically talking about a, an issue that arose recently again after one year, and it's the Nobel Peace Prize to uh, Liu Xiaobo. And I think that because it's not that significant in China, apparently, it doesn't have that much a huge number of followers and his impact won't be that big but here in the West the news that he's in prison and they're doing like they're not releasing him it's a big big news and makes us view China like really distorted so why does the Chinese government care so much about just one individual which will, will not have many followers okay should we keep those two and then okay 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 the, the if I can um, I, I 
apologize. I, I hadn't realized the, the fact about the fishery statistics previously, and I will go investigate that afterwards. The, let me try and take your question at the level of how much we can trust the statistics that we see coming out of, of these studies. Um, I often try and triangulate my use of statistics from different sources. So for instance, um, often I will use international sources rather than statistics that come directly out of China. Or I will look at statistics from China that have to add up in particular ways with what I see elsewhere. The numbers on poverty reduction that I talked about here are actually World Bank survey numbers. There are numbers by two very distinguished uh, World Bank economists, Martin Revelian and Xiao Hua Chen. Um, and so I, I find myself uh, quite trusting of certainly the poverty numbers, certainly the poverty reduction numbers. On some of the investment numbers that I didn't get to talk about or the trade numbers that I didn't get to talk about, I think that they're not, they square with, they square with statistics that other people use um, in more critical ways. They unpack those statistics to reveal some things that are going on beneath those statistics. So for instance, a fact that I would have, uh, that might be useful to talk about is the high investment rate in China. Now, when we break that down, we see that actually the numbers add up, but in a way that suggests that the, the split between the Chinese who are saving a lot and the Chinese who are consuming a lot differ systematically in whether they come from rich regions in China or poor regions in China. So when I look at China's statistics on that kind, I ask, does it square with other statistics that I know? And does it then... Is it, a, is it an economically plausible story? The fishery statistics I'm not so clear about. Again, the energy statistics that I showed you very briefly are again uh, World Bank numbers. From my understanding, they are triangulated with imports that China undertakes of energy from elsewhere in the world. So trade numbers are usually extremely reliable because there's two sides to the transaction. On the other question, if I, I hope I'm not misinterpreting. You were asking about the Dalai Lama and Tibet? Okay, so a, a range of activists that are persecuted in, in China. Mm. Yeah, um, okay. I, I don't want to pretend I have any special insight on, on this particular side of the, the story. What I read from people like, from writers like James Fallows, who writes for The Atlantic, and other observers, long-time journalists in China, is that here again, uh, there, are, there are bad things and good things to be said on both sides. There's been a tremendous improvement in the economic well-being of many persecuted groups, but at the same time, obviously, they still feel dissatisfaction in not being able to engage in religious or political practice that they wish. My hope is that as China matures as a political system, we will see greater liberalization of this kind. And it will not at all hurt the Chinese government or the Chinese leadership when it lets this happen. Not at all. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a very good question. It's the same question that gets posed over and over again in many of these Western journalists who are trying to describe both sides of the problem. And and the the most compelling thing I can say I, I I've heard described to me is that there is just miscommunication along a long hierarchy. Okay, the same way that happened with the G G20 interceptor with Hu Jintao thinking that this meeting with Robert Gates was going to be straightforward, and then some military commander way down the line said, oh no, we're going to have our maiden flight of this interceptor jet. That's going to be a direct challenge to the US in the, in the skies. What were they thinking? Okay, well, we're going to move from west to east, see what we're doing here. Uh, gentleman in the stripe, and then gentleman there with the glasses. Thank you. Uh, my name's Harry Coth. I was going to say, um, there was an article in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago which uh, pointed out um, a growing and already quite severe inequality between the rural and urban regions of China. And I was going to ask, do you think that that kind of inequality is a major barrier to China's continuing development? And if so, what it can do about it? Okay, thank you. And then the gentleman with the glasses. Hi, Danny. Thanks for the talk. Um, my question is, uh, you said one of the, reason, one of the uh, causes for China potentially slowing down is the rest of the world stopping it, so not allowing it to continue. And I'm curious as to how that act might actually happen. I don't see people refusing to buy iPhones if they're uh, made in China. So if it, will it become basically a resource grab? Um, yeah. One more question. Yeah. Okay, we we'll do one more question. Bring to um, gentleman there. Hello, my name is Max Trewall. I'm an LSE alumni. Uh, I was quite intrigued by your slide in the beginning uh, where you showed um, the percentage of the population in the United States and in different European countries um, that see China as a threat compared to an opportunity. The one country or the one region that you did not talk about in this slide uh, was Africa. And it turns out that Africa is actually the continent that holds the most positive views. Uh, so despite uh, the fact, as you, as you pointed out in another slide, um, that China is on the best way to own Africa, what did China do right in Africa to receive these extremely positive view, views? Thank three you. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, exactly. Three very good questions. Um, rural urban inequality. How much an obstacle is this going to be? Um, we, we know that Chinese income inequality is now among the highest in the world. In 1980, the Chinese, uh, income in, Chinese income distribution showed a Gini coefficient of about 32%, the same kind of inequality that we see in most of Western Europe. In the next three decades, it skyrocketed to close to 50%. It's now in excess of 50%, the kind of inequality that we see only in, well, pretty much only in three other major countries. Uh, post transition Russia, where there was obviously a grab for resources, and then the United States, the wild free market capitalism, that's the United States, and then finally Singapore. It is only these three countries that we see the same kind of high income inequality that we see in China today. Unlike the inequality in all of these other countries though, China's inequality is almost entirely rural-urban, as you describe, as the, as the Guardian newspaper has pointed out. 
Um, that, I think, is actually positive. It's positive for how we might repair income inequality and how China's development path might proceed from here on out. Individual income inequality is extremely difficult to try and treat if you think it is a problem. You know, people disagree about the tax rates that should be applied to different income groups. Uh, look at what the United States, the machinations that the United States has to go through, the instant it tries to think about adjusting its tax, think about the huge uproar when Warren Buffett says that billionaires pay less taxes than secretaries. You know, when you talk about people trying to redistribute income, it's hugely difficult. China's problem is that its income inequality within cities is about the same as that you see everywhere else in the world. Its income inequality that you see within rural villages is about the same that you see everywhere else in the world. The huge divide is rural-urban. What's the solution? Invest in rural areas. The rural areas are now poorer. They're almost entirely all in the west of China. They get you away from the crowded, polluted, difficult to get into, extremely rich, property-bubbled eastern seaboard, including Beijing and Shanghai. What China can do, and what the Chinese political leadership talks about constantly, is to go west. Take your investment and go west. In economic terms, that increases the rate of return, increases the marginal product on your investment and your capital. It raises the income of the rural areas. It completely solves the Hukou problem that rural Chinese find difficulty to try and come to urban areas. In one fell swoop, it will raise domestic consumption, lower income inequality, continue rapid Chinese economic growth, raise the returns to capital, Chinese investment and infrastructure will continue to see productive use. So this actually, I think in my reading, this rural-urban divide is actually positive rather than negative. But you are right, the more we acknowledge it and recognize it, and the more we repair it, the better it will be, not just for China, but for everyone else. You will see dramatic poverty reduction continue. How will the rest of the world stop China? Now, okay, so, I am, I am using the language, obviously, rather loosely, liberally. No one's going to come up to Shenzhen seaports from the rest of the world, put up their hands, and say, no, we're not taking anything more from you. No one's going to go into China and say, look, you know, the, the manufacturing, the state-owned enterprises that you've got that are producing all of these manufactured goods, we want you to stop. That's not going to happen. But the international relations and political power machinations act in very subtle, implicit ways. Okay. So, for instance, if we continue to believe that China's, this connects with the next question on Africa, we continue to believe that China's economic activities in Africa uh, need to be curtailed for a whole list of reasons. China's not integrating with the African community, they are remaining separate, they're bringing in their own people, to, they're bringing in Chinese, they are supporting rogue states, they're having to try and take a political stance, they are simply ripping off natural resources. We could, tell, we could go to Africa and tell a whole lot of stories that would make Chinese business in Africa extremely uncomfortable. We could make life extremely difficult for Chinese exporters by slapping tariffs on them. 
by you know U.S. by the U.S. houses of Congress, suggesting that unless China realigns its currency, we will slap tariffs on it. Uh, we will see the possibility for ever greater trade wars on tires that China exports uh, for a whole range of other goods. And here's the thing, exactly as you say, no one is going to say to Foxconn in Shenzhen, stop making iPods and iPhones, because we all want them. And the other thing is, none of us realizes that every single iPhone and iPad is actually made in China. There are lots of goods and services that will be continue to be consumed in the West. But a lot of what matters for building heavy machines, for, for continuing to, to engage in technical progress, not just putting together assembly line final manufactured goods, all of that can be easily disrupted in the global chain of production. Africa, exactly as you say, I did not advertise that in the same publication related publications. Africa's views towards China have almost uniformly been positive. What do I think China is doing right here? It's not sending in people to, to Africa to say, here's how, you should, here's how you should redesign your villages. It's not sending in people to try and, and cure the sleeping sickness through administering, administering medications. It's going into Africa and saying, we want to do business with you. We're going to be partners. Sometimes we're not going to be very good at being partners. Hey, we're not even good at being partners with our own Chinese countrymen back in China, but we want to be partners with you. I think that is the single most important difference between how China is operating in Africa and how everybody else is operating in Africa. Okay. Energy for two more questions? Yes. Okay. I, I, what, um, I'm going to a very male-dominated question base. Fine, good. <laughs> Question there for the, in, the, in the black top, and then one more in the blue. Then I think we've got the gender balance right in questioning. Um, when you talk about there being 627 million Chinese brought out of poverty, I'm wondering whether this is skewed towards a particular sex. For example, more men are being brought out of poverty. Um, and if that's the case, um, what what are the implications? Okay, and then the lady in the turquoise blue top. Okay. Uh, my question is, to what extent is the rise in average Chinese income totally incompatible with the entire theory behind the Chinese Communist Party? Um, and is the party actually acting in the interests of its own survival. And secondly, how quickly do you envisage um, the government freeing up um, Chinese capital markets? Because obviously right now the Chinese yuan is pegged, um, controlled. And do you think this will be a good thing for the economy? Okay, and we got one more question, Tony, where, where was the question you saw? Yeah, that was in back, the right way in back. Right. Way in back. Way back, there we go, right, right at the back. Thank you, Professor Kwan. Um, you mentioned in your presentation that China has done lots of good things, but uh, their communication is a little bit ineffective. So language, admittedly, is one of the barriers. But apart from language, what areas do you think Chinese can do better to ensure effective communication going forward? Okay, okay. well, you have to leave it there okay. with questions, so okay. thank you. Thank you. Really interesting questions. 627 million uh, people grow out of poverty. How was that distributed? What was the gender balance like? The, from what I've been able to tell, 
the distribution across the 56 ethnic groups, as well as the majority uh, Han Chinese. There is not a significant difference that you can put your finger on across all of, across these. A lot of the ethnic minorities were already those who are living in the poorer parts of the country. To the extent that poverty reduction occurred evenly, many more of them proportionally were brought out. The gender balance issue, however, is a, is a very important one for a whole host of reasons. Among them, the one-child policy and, and you know, a range of other attitudes that are not specific to China, not specific to Chinese, but they are common across Asia. Gender imbalance in China is now massive. Um, given, the birth rates that are, given the birth rates that are reported and occurring, uh, there are now about, for every thousand Chinese men, there are about 850 Chinese women. Scale it up to 1.3 billion people, we're talking very soon there will be 24 million more Chinese men than there are women. That's a third, uh, you know, more than a third of the United Kingdom. There will be men, Chinese men unpaired. And this will be a this will be a huge problem. Uh, on the other hand, it will continue to raise and elevate the position of women in China and in Asian societies. They will, in economic terms, be the scarce commodity. <laughs> For the microeconomists among us, the Lagrange multiplier on Chinese women will become ever steeper. They will become more confident, more powerful, more politically in control. All of that is very positive. Nonetheless, this huge gender imbalance is potentially politically very disruptive. Let me quickly add to that, that while we're talking about China here, this gender imbalance is actually seen across Asia. In the world's largest democracy, India, where there has not had an experience with one-child policy, that does not have the same kind of poverty reduction that we've seen in China, that many of the rest of the world would not you know, mention in the same breath as gender imbalance in China. India, too, has seen a dramatic decline in the number of Indian women relative to men. The number of, you know, for every 1,000 Indian men now, there are only 900 Indian women. That's more than the 850 Chinese men, but not a huge number more. Asia is just not a friendly place for young girls. <laughs> um, and that's something that I hope will, will change. On the, the issue of China, rising Chinese average income, is that incompatible with the Chinese Communist Party? I think pretty much everyone acknowledges that the Chinese Communist Party is about increasing the prosperity and the well-being of China and its citizens. And if that comes from increasing incomes, which pretty much it does have to, that is the policy. I see no incompatibility or inconsistency. China really isn't a communist country. And the world's largest socialized bank is the US Federal Reserve System. Um, the, you know, the, there is a convergence of how we view political and economic systems. Do I think that China should free up capital markets? Probably, but not entirely freely and un, in an uncontrolled way. The practice that we've seen in 
a lot of Asian economies, not just China, is that there is a tendency to use the stock market in a way that's not financially literate. Heck, what are we saying? We're here in the West, we're talking about the rest of the world not being financially literate in how they use the stock market. But I think there is a great prevalence of that. And until a greater financial maturity sets in on the population and capital market participants, I think any freeing up capital markets should proceed only slowly and gradually. The language issue, like the, the third question says, is an obvious issue, but that's one that can be repaired. What else can China and maybe other Asian societies do here? In Joseph Nye, oops. I think that's... Uh, I think that's a sign that we're nearly over, but yes. hang on in there. <laughs> Joseph Nye... I think you have to move, you know, to get the lights on again. Okay. So Joseph Nye, who's a political scientist at Harvard University, writes about international relations. Among other things that he's known for is developing the concept of soft power. Soft power is how a nation becomes powerful in the world without either coercing through military means other nations or without paying, buying off other nations through economic means, but instead by convincing other nations to want what they want. And Joseph Nye argues that for the foreseeable future, no matter how the global economy shifts, the United States will remain the global repository of soft power because everybody in the world wants a little bit of America. It might not want many other things about America, but it wants the Hollywood and the culture and the pop music and the jeans and the clothes. It wants US culture. And where China and other fast-growing emerging countries who are vying for political, global political leadership need to look is how we develop these other tokens of cultural, not cultural superiority, but cultural tokens that make it evident we are a good society. We are a society that other people will want to come to, learn from, and participate in, and be part of. And I think that is the direction that China and the rest of the emerging world needs to take. Okay, well look, we've come to the end of the session. Before I thank um, Professor Kwa formally, I'd like to thank all of you in the audience as well for the quality of your questions. It's been absolutely amazing. I'd like to see the, thank the team at the Confucius Institute of Business London for putting on the event and organising. And really, huge thanks to you, Danny, for putting on an amazing show. Thank you so much.